Boom, what's up everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Super pumped to be talking about shadows, desires, and creativity. We have Midori joining us on the show. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank Midori. you for having me. Very, yeah. very excited for this. For those who don't know, Midori's background, Midori is an elegant provocateur who educates on subjects of sexuality, BDSM, and self-expression, helping people reframe their place in the world. And you can find the links in the bio, ranshin.com, Women's Dominance Weekend Intensives at fordfm.com, and all her other events at fhp-inc.com. And check out her social profiles, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Patreon. Let's do this, Midori. What are your thoughts on the direction of our world? Oh, man. Well, it depends if you are a Star Wars person or a Star Trek person. Ooh. Right? Or Battlestar Galactica or, yeah, or a David Lynch person. Right? It's going to depend. Um, I think... The future is in the hands of stubborn dreamers. The stubborn dreamers, right? Yeah, I think the future is in the hand of stubborn dreamers. You gotta be stubborn, and but you gotta have something that you're dreaming towards and making the 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 stubbornness worth it. And I think future is in the hands of, the future is in the heart of the empathetic. I love that. Because we're in a place where essentially the, the battle's not between good versus evil, but it's between the empathetic and those who have lacking in deep empathy. Yeah. I like that frame a lot. It's like one of the grand challenges of existing on this rock together is figuring out how to live on it harmoniously with nature, with what sustains us, with each other. And that's to dream, to be the stubborn dreamers, to dream that future mm -hmm. and then to get there together and to realize we can still compete and make ideas but live co cohesively with nature. Yeah. And to recognize that uh, as species, we've come, uh, as species, we are destroy and consume, right? That's, that's how the organism survives. I mean, just at a basic digestive level. And create. Right? Well. So we need to take in things in order to, we, we destroy and we consume the byproduct of that, okay? The byproduct of that, biologically, is shit, all right? But what do you do with this shit, right? Do you take that shit and create manure out of it, or do you take shit and fling it at each other? Mm. <laughs> You're right. Your metaphors are so on point today. <laughs> I love Thank it. you. But yeah, I mean, you know, we destroy, we consume, we do produce shit. So what do we do with this shit? And once long ago, you know, we took shit 
and made fuel out of it. We took shit and grew food out of it. And Dadaist artists have put shit in a can and called it art. Yeah. <laughs> As in art is shit. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've started the show scatologically, And we talk about, you know, uh, living in harmony with nature, but I think part of it is that we may ignore that the cycle of, the natural cycle on this piece of rock is a constant process of, of matter coming together, matter dissolving, matter coming together, matter dissolving. And where are we in that cycle of matter coming apart and matter coming back together. I hope we're not going to keep yeah, flinging shit at each other. We're going to yeah, use it for yeah. good purposes. And, fertilizer. Yeah, fertilizer and also see us uh, in a trajectory that's yeah, more positive coming together. Yeah, and it does, yeah, ebb and flow like that. Mm -hmm. And um, with the exponential technology age and the crazy geopolitical stuff that's happening to come together is critical on the, yeah, yeah, there can be a lot of chaos and civilization collapse if we don't, so, mm -hmm. yeah. And empathy uh, to... That's beautifully said, yeah. Yeah, and empathy to, to develop a world where empathic, to engage in empathy and compassion is a social norm. Yeah. And I think that's true for just interpersonal relationship as well as business design, as well as urban design. Um, taking a moment to be able to see the same situation, the Rashomon situation, from somebody else's perspective. That's right, yeah. You don't have to agree with them. Yeah, but to see it. To be able to take a moment to say, all right, you might see it in this frame. Yeah. Would you call it a Rasha? Rashomon. Rashomon? Rashomon is the, the Japanese movie that, um, a, a famous movie in Japan where there was a, a crime that happened at a temple gate. And it is told from the perspective of three different people. Cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's how you get it. I love that. That's yeah. <laughs> so well said. Yeah, that'll get that'll get people to better understand. Uh, there, as people say, there's always two sides to a story, or three, or there's always eight billion perspectives on the planet. Well, now there is, but so but, like, yeah. take the women's World Cup, right? Okay, so let's take three different perspectives. Did you, from one one person's perspective, say the goalie, England goalie? We lost, she may say, from the team captain of the women's team USA, we won. But from the perspective of the soccer ball, I got kicked around a lot and I got no thanks for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I like that a lot. Um, yeah, that, that that's a great way to explain how to try and see the empathetic 
uh, perspective from behind people's eyes and like the point isn't to agree the point is to be able to immerse yourself in their shoes mm -hmm. and understand their worldview and then that's a big part of our future that empathetic mm -hmm. future every street corner almost now in developed worlds has ubiquity and food where you can get it however you want it from whatever ethnicity but why don't we have that for our social emotional desires why can't I go and order empathy from a very specific style person um, so this these are some of the most uh, rooted things in our evolution and they're not readily available for us. They're very hard for us to access sometimes. And I think um, the shows like this, as well as long format interview shows, as well as the movement towards storytelling um, and real life personal storytelling, the moth, the body storytelling, uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross, etc., etc. I mean, all of that is seeking empathy. Yeah. So you're watching this in order to step into two other human beings world perspective. So in participating in the modern movement of storytelling, of narrative, of long format interviews, at the very moment when it's a Twitterverse, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, at the very moment when it's 140 characters, at the very moment when it's seemingly nothing but knee-jerk, reactive journalism, at the same time, there's a huge interest out there, you, viewers, of stepping towards empathy and understanding other people's experience. Yeah. And this is what you guys are doing in creating this show. Thank you, Midori. So, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and yeah, it's paramount to push um, that story forward and see how it um, impacts our world when other people get so excited about taking on other people's perspectives and what that means for um, empathy in our future. You do this in your own way as well, your own beautiful way. Um, yeah, you actually have this, this very beautiful, um, you have this very beautiful quote in your book. I do BDSM in search of a moment's clarity and pureness of existence. Yeah. Opening line of my book. Love Wild that. side sex. We're going to get there. I love that. See, we carry that same essence of wanting to get to these deepest aspects of our psyches. And let's, let's learn more about you. You're born in Tokyo. Actually born in Kyoto, but raised in, in Tokyo. Born in Kyoto, raised yeah. in Tokyo, okay. I, I was moved to Tokyo so young that I don't even remember Kyoto really. And so then what was that even like? Like who were you as a kid? What was the culture like? How did you get interested in things that you care about? Okay, so oh, my, my father country, right? Um, and I am multicultural. Um, there's this uncomfortable conversation that happens in Japan all the time. It also happens here. When I introduce myself and, oh, you know, I'm, it usually goes something like this. Midori, oh, that's a Japanese name. Yes. You're not Japanese. Um, I'm Japanese. And they're like, oh, but you're not fully Japanese. And then the question is, in 21st century, what does it mean to be Japanese? Mm. Right? I mean, what does American look like? Because I know what people are saying is that, oh, 
your, and then I would clarify with the question of, do you mean my parental ethnic heritage? Do you mean my citizenship? Do you mean my cultural affiliation? Do you mean the foundation of my cultural upbringing or my, my personal, uh, my identification as to where my culture is from? You know, language, citizenship, nationality, ethnicity, the construct of race, what do you mean? Because you know, somebody's not going to walk up to you and say, oh, well, you don't look American. You look, well, European. Well, the assumption is what's American is now supposedly white. But then, what is American? And yeah, I am Japanese, and I am also an international. International is what I would call a whole new generation of those of us who straddle multiple cultures. And we are of the world. Yeah. And yes, there are cultures that we identify with, that we are from, we are of, but multiples at the same time. Yeah. So I'm an international, and I am Japanese, and I am also American. And the multiplicity and the intersectionality can exist in one being. I mean, that's intersectionality. So growing up in Japan as a multicultural, um, multi-ethnic, going to public school in Japan was not easy, let me tell you. Why? Yeah, well, it's, it, when I was growing up, it was very monoracial. And in the urban areas, it's changing a bit. But it's still, you know, it's an island nation protected by the god winds. Um, so the ideal and the myth is it's monoracial. But there are actually more than the one visibly, identifiably Japanese race, right? So Japanese race, I put that in big bunny earmarks. Um, so growing up, it was interesting with uh, my heritage being Japanese and German American. So from my German American side, my grandmother instilled in me that you are Japanese, you are of Japan, but you do not need to, need to be under the thumb of Japanese oppression. Because it is a difficult culture. It is a beautiful culture. It, is, it has fantastic traditions, great food, fantastic food. Tasty, tasty food. But it's also like any other country and culture, and civilizations, it's complicated with its uglier sides. So my, my grandmother, my feminist German suffragist grandmother, made sure that I saw myself as citizen of the world and to put my, put my roots down and enjoy the flowers and the fruits of Japan, but then to, to be able to run in the fields of the ideal of American liberty. But she came from the early 20th century and fought for the right for women to vote. And she was looking at a time, again, of stubborn dreamers. And she came out of a time when it was, she was devastated by the, uh, the Great War. World War I had wreaked havoc upon people and country and she had survived the depression and survived World War II. 
And here's a woman who said, don't be a conformist. Don't be yeah. under the thumb of things Japanese. Appreciate Japan, but be a woman of the world. Wow. Which made for friction in worldview growing up in Japan. So, I am very much the child of Edo, uh, old name of Tokyo. So I consider myself an Edoko, child of Edo. It's like saying a New Yorker, right? <laughs> uh, I'm an Edoko. <laughs> I am a child of the Showa Imperial Era, the two emperors back now. Um, I absolutely am to the bones, have so many things that are Japanese value. <laughs> At the same time, I also have German-American intelligentsia, pioneer daughter, daughter of American Revolution in my blood as well. One of my ancestors was on the Mayflower. Hmm. Yeah. So that makes for kind of a convoluted worldview for a little person. It's a beautiful worldview. I think it just sets a young person up for so much. Yeah. That's great. In you my, thank that. you. In my adulthood, yes, the childhood was hard because Japanese, well, Japan is a deeply racist country. Just nationalism. Is, yes. It's not so much racism, it's just proud national heritage. It's nationalism, but it's also racism. I'm going to totally own it. I mean, my culture of origin is deeply racist. So much so that I was denied citizenship because I'm mixed. Hmm. So I might have some feelings around the current immigration issues. So, grew up in Japan, um, went to public school as one of the few out internationals. I mean, a bunch of other kids went to, with, with similar heritage, I think, ended up going to international schools, and there are benefits to that. Um, and you also miss, up, gr miss growing up as Japanese, but then that's, that's a whole international school thing, right? So I grew up in that. My mother is a scholar in um, Japanese literature. So I ended up hanging out in a lot of antiquarian bookstores and old neighborhoods. Yeah. And going to temples and going to shrines. And let me tell you, the mythology in Japan is fantastic. The ghost stories in Japan. Mm. Yeah. So I grew up with all of that. And then at around the age of 14, as the teenage angst hit and the pressure for school exams, and then realizing that what, what's my future as a mixed blood Japanese girl who comes from a divorced family, okay? So these are all strikes against, and female. And on top of that, a fire horse. Fire horse is my birth year. And it's also my company name. That's why my company mm -hmm. name, Fire Horse Productions. Uh, it happens every 60 years. And girls born on this year are supposedly cursed. 
we can't be tamed. And like horses with fire coming out of our manes, we run roughshod over the men in our lives and we're not marriageable and we speak our minds. Oh no. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not so, a curse, blessing in many ways. Yeah. It is, in hindsight, but under old Japanese structure of uh, patriarchy and reliance, where women could access power and privilege through marriage and arrange marriage at that too, wasn't an option. And, uh, and I'm looking at my future and going, do I really want to stay here? Or do I want to go to that land far away that my grandmother has told me of? So my teenage angst, you know, in the U.S. you go for sex, drugs, and rock and roll when the teenage angst hits. In Japan, when the teenage angst hit, you hit suicide. I had a third out. Go to the U.S. So I ended up up in Washington State with my grandmother. You went with grandma? I went, yeah, and she was like, okay, time to go. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She had a massive influence on your worldview and your life. Oh, yeah. And, and so did my mother in her ability. And my mother's still alive. She's in Tokyo. Uh, she has this genius, genius human being, right? Um, and like so many geniuses, have a slightly difficult time dealing with actual ordinary humans. But she has this ability to connect the dots, right? Connect dots and seemingly disparate historical facts. And I think I got that from my mother, not in the historical facts, but disparate, seemingly disparate aspect of human desire and creativity. So, now, growing up in Japan, the sexual attitudes are very different there. It's modesty and context appropriateness. And it's about shame, not guilt. In Judeo-Christian West, especially in the United States now that, that there's a strong um, evangelical influence and strong Christian influence, right? Um, the electric third rail and that which charges the sexual element of culture here is guilt. Guilt is that there is an omniscient other with some sort of constancy in, in a rule and rules that can, that's constant through context, right? And that there's a big guy up there who knows if you've been naughty or nice. Wait, that's Santa. He sees you when you're sleeping. You better be good for goodness, goodness sake. Yeah, and he sees you when you're jacking off, and he sees you when you're lying, and he sees you when you're running around in, a, in frilly panties or a business suit. So the Western civilization assumes a constancy in, constancy in universality of right and wrong. In Japan, the electric third rail of desire and that which is the force of, of social Guilt and shame are powerful and as a social and tribal structure, right? In Japan, it's shame. Shame is a horizontal structure as opposed to vertical. Horizontal cultural context 
What is my position in society and my responsibilities right now? Will I make you uncomfortable? Will I bring disharmony to the context now? So, for example, if you and I were working in the same company, the social contract is we would not talk about our personal lives at all, which makes for a really dull Monday morning conversation. Nobody talks about what happens on the weekend. But on the other hand, if you and I also happen to belong to the same sex club, I, you know, you might see me running around in a giant octopus outfit and I'll see you running around in frilly panties and we'd be like, hey dude, how's it going? And we wouldn't talk about work at all. And it would be entirely appropriate within the closed doors and the social context. Can we shatter all the taboos? <laughs> so, in Japan, you don't have that. And so I didn't grow up with the, the um, oh my God, this is bad, it is sin. I did grow up with the, it's what I'm doing making you uncomfortable. Is it socially appropriate? So coming over to the US, I didn't have the, the guilt around the desire, but I was very concerned about, is this the right place? Mm. This is the spirit of your grandmother assisted with your spirit evolving here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so what, uh, what, what happened uh, when you got here and you're experiencing the U.S. and you're figuring oh man. yourself out? I was that weird, nerdy, foreign student. Weird, nerdy, foreign student. I was fascinated with old clothing before it was fashionable and called vintage clothing. So I was that weird foreign student in odd old clothing. I think in like the breakfast club, I might have been like the goth girl. No, I wasn't even that coordinated. No, no, I was like that. Okay, drama guild, academic decathlon, um, the uh, German club, and doing my calculus homework on a Saturday night. That was me. That was me. Oh my God. Total dork. Yeah. Stressing over tests. That's a big leap to now from that. Yeah. I, I loosened up. You loosened up, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I was like an uptight. Uptight? No, I, I was. Um, I was a good Asian kid. I wanted to do well in school. I liked school. And I didn't understand this need to not do well in school. And of course, I'm doing this all in a language I didn't have before. I had rudimentary English, like a family pigeon. And so now I'm suddenly dumped into like public high school in the US. And I felt like a Martian observing the mating habits of another species. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel daily sometimes, yeah. Yeah. And so like, I don't understand this whole, like, like American kids were like, at that point, they were like fascinated with like hickeys. 
And I'm, yeah. why <laughs> are you bringing up blood to the surface? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I don't understand. You're latched on like a lamprey on a shark. What? I don't understand. There were like certain things about American teenage sexuality and mating habits that I just did not understand. So I would be that kid in, and then I, you know, I fell in with all the, the nerds and the weirdos, right? And the theater kid and the, the yeah, and the AV club guys. <laughs> there was like one, one guy who was like, you know, uh, uh, one guy who was like, cross subculture and cross tribal. He was like smart guy as well as band leader and ran with the football kids, but also like hung out with the weird like AV kid. And so he was like the only one that I think made it through the tribes. But you know, I would be the one sitting in the cafeteria on Monday morning, listening to the sexual exploits of the one, one girl who was, had a mohawk and had like permissive parents and told us stories of her adventure. And I'd be like, oh, such fascinating American mating habits. <laughs> and uh, that was just really interesting. I spent a lot of time listening and curious. And all the while, I had a rich fantasy life of my own that was entirely my own. And so I was this weirdly dressed kid who was only focused on, seemingly only focused on, on uh, schoolwork, but all the while I'm watching like some little X-Files alien of the other kids. But at home, I would rummage through my mother's beautiful vintage clothing from uh, like these Jackie O dresses from the 60s and I would like dress myself up and put on like drag queen level makeup like stare at myself in the mirror in transformation and somehow weirdly aroused by and I don't mean weirdly in a judgmental way but somehow aroused by this creature I saw in the mirror mm -hmm. and so I would like change my outfits mm -hmm. over and over and I, I had a rich fantasy life, and uh, me and my right hand got along great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No consent issues there. Mm -hmm. Hi. Hi. Yes, I would like you to touch me. I don't want to touch you. Yes. No consent issue there. Yeah, it was great. Um, yeah, I was very sexual with myself. Because I came from Tokyo to a little cow town in Washington, I also... Um, Urban elitism saved me from teenage pressure. Urban elitism and just being this strange alien kid, right? And because I came from this big city, right? I was already hanging out in jazz bars with my mother going to political meetings, tagging along. You know, and in the city of millions, and then going to a cow town, so I kind of had this idea that, well, anything that the uh, teenagers are into here must be stupid. So I had that kind of urban elitism. 
which in the long run saved me from a lot of things that I'm glad that I didn't get peer pressured into. Yeah. Yeah. In in, in some in some ways the humans moving into metropolises that are now melting pots of different cultures um, and uh, certain people that are uh, very like hyper creative that are trying to um, spread memes or ideas around the world. It's a cool place to be, although it's at times very disconnecting from nature. Totally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what about how you ended up, you know, you're talking a bit about that. You're, you're putting on different outfits, you know, you're getting along really well with your right hand, you know, all these types of things. You have a big fantasy mm-hmm. world. But then how does that get you into becoming an author and an artist uh, yeah. and a sex educator? Yes. Now, so, you know, I gotta say though, recently, back to the high school part, my, that Rashomon thing, the different perspective, how I saw myself in high school, apparently was not how some of my friends saw me. Yeah, yeah and that's interesting. Yeah. And I was so surprised recently when I heard from somebody I knew in high school who uh, told me that I was one of the most confident and grounded people she knew in high school. And I was like, what? What? Yeah. It's so interesting. And apparently I was an influence on her. I had no idea. I was just quietly listening and watching and doing my own thing. There's an advantage to not fitting in and just accepting that. But she thought I was confident and grounded. Like, yay. Decades later I find out. So that Rashomon effect, right? I had no idea. That's how I thought. Um, I ended up along the way, uh, on a whim, enlisted in the U.S. Army. <laughs> that happened. Whoa. It seemed like it was an impulse. I liked the outfit, I think. But also, I had a certain bit of draw to, oh yeah, I didn't mention that, huh? Um, I think I was drawn to this masculine environment because I grew mm. up in an intellectual feminist female household Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there's a part of me that sought out something of the warrior something of the masculine not to say male but masculine and in Mm -hmm. hindsight I recognize that I was creating my own rite of passage yes (laughs) yeah yeah it makes sense when we look back and we can connect the dots yeah yeah Yeah, you went to another like hyper extreme in the edge and you learn something completely new that would be super essential to what you know now. Yeah, and I didn't realize that I was physically strong. I didn't realize that I had the capacity to deal with physically intense situations. Now, I served during peacetime, so my experience was not that of actually being in a campaign or being in combat. I served during peacetime, but I and still had to take some military history classes and 
learning command voice and jump out of airplanes and things like that and, and learn the organizational structures. Um, so I created my own rite of passage and I'm glad for that. I ended up at Cal. What was your MOS? Oh shit, I was 35 Delta. And what's that? Soviet Tactical Intelligence Analyst. Badass. Soviet. Soviet. Oh my god. And then they fell apart. So there went my job. And it sounds so glamorous. Like, yeah. So I ended up getting my commission in military intelligence. It's not what it's, no, it's, it's an oxymoron. Yes. Absolutely Con an oxymoron. In terms. It is. I was chairborne all the way. Um, it's kind of like, it's, it's essentially a silhouette identification game. Can I identify this silhouette of a tank? And based upon that, and based upon the knowledge of the Soviet tactical um, doctrine, can I identify what kind of unit is there? It's puzzle pieces. I wanted to fly helicopters, but I ended up intel. So then I ended up at Cal and kind of served a five-year sentence there trying to figure out what I wanted to do and had no idea. No idea. I have no training in uh, public speaking. Uh, oh, actually, I lie. You know who trained me in public speaking? There were two, two sources. One was Uncle Sam. So when I was in the service, I had to learn how to give briefings. I have to learn how to give briefings of, of uh, analysis summary to the higher-ups. I had to give mission briefings. And that's public speaking skills. Yep. So I learned that. Um, yeah. And I floated through Cal, and I probably should have studied SOCH but I just kind of had to declare a major and ended up declaring psych. But back then, Cal was, I don't know what it, how it is now, but it was very neurobiological and um, abnormal psych-based. And I'm more interested in how the strategies of ordinary people in navigating through this very complicated real life. Yeah. So. And college was, I just stumbled through it. Probably would have been better suited in some other schools, but I survived the grind that is Cal. Yay, go Bears. <laughs> um, I ended up in San Francisco shortly thereafter, and now I'm landing in San Francisco at the end of the, the end of the worst of the plague. So I'm this young woman who's coming into my adulthood and my sexuality and ending up in San Francisco as a dark cloud of, of AIDS hangs over the city as a generation of people wiped out in this unforgiving wave of death and hatred. Because it's not just the death, it's when politicians are saying, let's round these people up and quarantine them, maybe even gas them. When the president cannot address this pandemic, when families are abandoning their grown children and bodies go unclaimed, 
when physicians and health practitioners won't touch people, when the food of the patients would not be taken away because the healthcare workers did not want to touch them. When if you said hello to somebody six months later, they're dead. And people were at, people were at discos and nightclubs and sex parties, maybe having their last dance, their last fuck. I'm getting verklempt just thinking about it. This is very profoundly moving. Just yeah. the description of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. What I find most peculiar about that epidemic is it happened uh, not too long after the, the white riots, after uh, Danny White was uh, acquitted. And then uh, the, the riots, and they burned the police cars and tore the city up. And then the next thing, we're dealing with AIDS. And like you say, the politicians are blaming the activity. Well, if you, you know, don't mess around with the same sex, you won't have to worry about that. Those are, uh, those are interesting times. And uh, rest my uncle, Rich, and Nick the most positive influences of my family on my mother's side. Uh, we lost them young to that. They inspired me with uh, creativity and imagination and uh, just free spirit. So thank you for sharing your story, Midori. Oh, I'm gonna need a tissue. Yeah. We have some right oh, here. Oh, good, 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 yeah. yay. Yeah, make me all verklempt yeah. here. We lost an entire generation of creative yeah. force. Oh yeah. So, I end up in San Francisco, right as that's going on, right? And what year is this? Mm, that is, um, God, ninety-one. Jeez. Yeah. It's around the that's around the time that I was born. Mm-hmm. So ninety-one. And that's also right around the time of the, the growth of the valley in mm -hmm. terms of the technology software push and the computing era mm -hmm. yeah and the the glory that is the technological boom of San Francisco is built literally on the shoulders and the backs of dead people and if it were not for the people that gave a shit you know the stubborn dreamers like act up the, the, the whole process of um, now what's the big pharma industry and their ability to push through experimental drugs into the market, that wouldn't be happening if not for the ACT UP folks. And the, the break it and make it, that whole ethos of let's look at things and change it, and let's change it from the ground up, and the whole sex positive culture as well has owes a lot to the reality of being disowned, abandoned, and dying. You gotta change the system because the system doesn't care if you die. And what you know, part of the the freedom that we seem to enjoy in San Francisco is on literal backs of dead people. These stories are so important. We had 
a similar conversation with those that sacrificed so much to make the the push for cannabis um, as well and for those that push for civil rights mm -hmm. for those that push for women's rights for those that pushed for degrees of economic freedom around the planet people that are even today sacrificing themselves to make it so that they can decrease the amount of corruption and and greed and malevolence around the world and increase the amount of freedom, dignity, prosperity, peace. These stories need to be shared. And it's like the, one of the things that really makes my heart sink is when someone comes to San Francisco and then works in a tech company for a year and they've never visited the Pacific Ocean. They've never, oh. I've never dived into the, I've never dived into the history of what has made this place so great and uh, or even how the place itself was had many indigenous people that have been and the amount of of uh, reciprocity and love that hasn't been apologizing that hasn't been made and yeah so mm -hmm. there's a lot there yeah. and I'm happy that you've brought us to, to that and I landed in San Francisco from Berkeley, and right around then, and um, in that moment, as I'm I'm coming into San Francisco, I don't see the big picture, because in the moment you don't see the big picture, right? What I, but I realize that people dying was a norm. It shouldn't be a norm, but it was my norm. Ah. Getting, getting all teary-eyed. But you know, the effect of this was I ended up, and it was at the time when I was coming into my own sexuality, right? And my own, um, my own excitement of, ooh, sex with other people, not just my right hand and the shower head. Yay. Gotta love the shower head. Yeah. Love oh, a good shower. about the shower head. <laughs> yeah, I love my shower head. Yeah, so since, since I was a little one, I was a water masturbator. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, ooh, sex with other people. And I have my own apartment. Instead of a roommate situation, yay. Right, so I'm, I'm working in like some going nowhere administrative job downtown, and uh, um, had an idea, had no idea what I wanted to do for a career. You know, I wasn't one of these like smart, ambitious college students who was like, oh, I should be an engineer. I will get an MBA. I will be a neurosurgeon. I was like, I will get groceries. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So. You know, I have my own apartment, yay. I got a paycheck, yay. I have a cat, yay. Ooh, I see a flyer for a dance club. I figure out it's a gay dance club. I go dancing, yay. Um, handsome men who will flirt and dance with me, but it seemed it's a gay club, so it was 
sexy and fun and safe. In the meantime, I'm not fully aware, but somewhere in my bones I'm aware that I'm surrounded by people who are dancing with deep joy because they could be dead in a few months. Do I understand that passion? No, I don't. Not until later. So. Damn. Yeah. Oh, the clubs were fun. How can we live with that sense of being in the moment? It only, yeah, it only comes, I think it was, um, I believe it was Tim Timothy O'Leary that on the path out that he said that he could see eternity and even the blade of grass, something like that. Mm -hmm. and can we see that really? Timothy Leary? Yeah, I think so. Timothy Leary. I think it was um, him who said the that. The Merry Pranksters. And yeah. can we, can we really live uh, that much in the moment? Like in, that well, was really good. Well, when you got death on the front door, yeah. That's, yeah. That's re really present, yeah. Knock, knock, knock. Hello, death calling. <sighs> Not my time to go yet. No. Okay, fine. I'll come back later. Dance while you can, because I'm coming to get you. So, and then I end up finding flyers and little, you know, this is like before the internet, right? So, or internet's there, but not the web with easier access. And I think I was, all right, for those of you who've been around, I was hanging out on the well a bit. Um, the well? The well. I, what, I'm hmm? sorry, I don't know the well. Oh, the well was, was an early internet bulletin board yeah, Bay Area-based bulletin board service. Yeah, it's like, you know, internet archeology span there. Um, but I started finding interesting little flyers about like um, erotic poetry readings and then there was some fetish club and then I would get, I'm terribly shy, right? Terribly shy, I haven't really found my own voice, if you will. But there were these places I could get dressed up into neat expressions of myself and go. So I would create outfits with, you know, not, nothing sophisticated with uh, like glue guns and creative combinations of wardrobe and some makeup and I would come up with outfits and go to these events alone and nightclubs and events. I wasn't much of a drinker and wasn't much into drugs at all. But I like the opportunity of... Self-expression. Yeah. yeah. And so that dressing up little girl was allowed dressing up and then I realized that if I dressed up in some way that was an interesting outfit of some theme, some outfit, then it seemed to open doors for conversations with people and kind of met people and met some nice people and got cruised by some nice people and I ended up falling into, uh, cruised by uh, stubborn dreamers and idealists who believe that sexuality is part of 
of the human condition and, and human right and having safe, accurate information about to make one's own sexual decisions being so important in that that was my friends that got me into San Francisco sex information. This is before it was called the sex positive movement. I need to read this, this quote from you. Uh, there is no virginity to be lost, only adulthood to be gained. Yep. I like that one. Yep. And to have the right resources that are accurate for our yeah. sexual explorations. Yeah. And to be able to make individual decisions based upon safe, accurate, and judgment-free information. So I fell into a group of um, determined idealists who saw that the pursuit of pleasure was not, not a path for self-annihilation, but self-expression. Mm -hmm. This is the classic. Uh, right hand or left hand path. Yeah. Yeah. Do we pursue the pleasures for um, identifying self expression and connection with the source, mm -hmm. or do we stay in ascetic and abstain from um, overindulging in self of, of those pleasures to. Or with that to overindulge for obliteration and to disconnect. For obliteration. Right? Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah. It's a classic uh, conversation that's been had for a really long time by, by philosophers and So I, yeah. I ended up falling in with a group of people who were nice and fun and sexy and taught me some basic things about good sexual communication and different ways of looking at relationship and and sex and intimacy and uh, this was like the bleeding edge of culture and I got lucky. I didn't even know that the time that I was falling in with this really intensely bleeding edge subculture that was exploring yeah. not exploring orgasm not as an act of selfishness but self expression and pursuit of what we now call authenticity and mm. community forming and re-examining value based upon social justice. Yeah, at the cutting edge of the subculture forming. Yeah. Yeah. And then the people that I met were, they were just, okay, let's see, I met people that were named Joni and Annie and uh, Pat, who became Patrick, and uh, Carol, and Robert, and these were all people that were making culture. Annie Sprinkle, Carol Queen, Robert Lawrence, Patrick Califia, Joni Blank, um, etc., etc., and they and Fakir Musafar and. These are lists of leaders in the field that were at the edge of the subculture developing. And this they was in the early 90s? Yeah, and they were just fun, sexy people who were nice to me. Because I'm just this young person. 
And I think I was relatively stable and seemingly um, considerate, interesting enough. I kind of tagged along, hang, hang, hung out with them and uh, started helping out in, I would, I wasn't so world aware and, and enlightened as to say that I'm going to protest and change the world. Now it was like somebody asking, okay, we're going to go do a um, safer sex live demo at a sex club. Come help. Okay. Because the public health officials, as much as they wanted to, their hands were tied. They could just stand behind a table and hand out condoms and say, use a condom or you die. I mean, that's all that they could do because the, the municipal or government funding. Whereas a band of merry perverts could bridge the gap of information and yeah, to yeah. teach from not just smart sex, but smarter, hotter sex. Yeah. It wasn't just safe sex, right? Safe sex assumed for, well, if you have sex, you'll die like a bad horror movie yeah, yeah. as opposed to hey we're humans we have we get to have sex but why don't we have it smarter because there's some things that could happen and some of the things could happen on one side is the death but sometimes it's a broken heart and that sucks too and to know how to have a, a, um the feeling of knowing what to do in those moments are so important mm -hmm. and to be able to talk to other people about those moments yeah yeah, yeah. and so I ended up saying yes to a lot of things and when I say yes to a lot of things I don't mean yes as in uh, um, disregarding my own boundary but I mean yes to people saying okay there's this thing we need help there's we need somebody to staff the table we need somebody to step up and start staffing the phone for providing sex information we need somebody to come out and help out with a live safer sex demo okay we need some or at the nightclub I would hang out with the hang out at and I would show up every week in a different outfit I was a regular in fantastical outfits um, and somebody that was a regular performer would say, oh, hey, um, uh, I want to come up and perform, be part of a fashion show. I'm starting a latex company. Okay. I want to come up on stage and dance with me and Daisy, the 12-foot long boa constrictor. Okay. Hey, what are you doing there? Oh, this is called flogging. I will show you. Okay. You were in school. I was in school. I was like Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. And, you know, I was sitting around with the Mad Hatter and I was sitting around with the Queen of Hearts and, and playing croquet with um, uh, pink flamingos and I just didn't know it was not normal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that became the norm. Being at the edge became the norm. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, and all the while I'm still the nerdy girl who's curious about human strategy, but now instead of feeling like an alien among different species, <laughs> I'm 
Apparently, these people are wow, amazing. And so I found myself in awe and wonder and adventure. And in the meantime, I am not worrying at all about a career. I, I like, you know, completely um, a fool when it came to being a responsible capitalist system cog in the wheel. I made a living well enough to pay for the rent of a studio that in San Francisco I could still afford then. Oh my God. Um, I kind of, I suppose I should have worried more about money. I wasn't money driven. I was still awfully curious about people. Um, I seem to have completely abandoned any sort of grade, I must achieve this grade, I must achieve this success, because I was already born outside of the way that I was born. I was born outside of expectations of success and whatever that meant. So I'm down the rabbit hole. Yep. Having a good time and going to exploring at very uh, sex parties thrown by nice people and sitting in cafes um, with leathermen and leather dyke talking about um, the experience of what is it like and we, we, we would be discussing like the emotional states of experiences and some of the people that I knew were uh, you know, forward revolutionaries and out marching in the streets. I was a little shy about that stuff. But along the way, somebody noticed that I was accumulating a lot of skill and had some opinions. So a local sex newspaper editor approached me and said, hey, you have some interesting ideas. Would you be interested in writing? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 I can't write. I, uh, uh, no, no, no. And you know, I had that, like, you know, the, the Japanese student. <laughs> I can't write, I can't write. And he, um, uh, Lane Winkleblech, who was a publisher of Spectator magazine, along with his partner, Kat Sunlove, and I owe him a lot because he took me out to dinner and started to pick my brain about my worldview and my philosophies and my adventuring into alternative sexuality and adventuring into what would soon become called BDSM. It was just called SM then, uh, or leather. Mm. And I'm hanging out with the black leather wings and I'm hanging out with Leatherman, hanging out with San Francisco Sex Information, I'm hanging out with fetish clubs. And Lane says, you know, you have some interesting perspectives. Yeah. Could you write a monthly write a column? Month. Yeah, that's I'm great. Like, oh, I, 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 no, no, I, English second language, eek, eek. And he's like, I'm an editor, that's my job. Just put your thoughts down and I'll fix it. Okay, and dinner's on me. Okay, and I'll pay you for it. Really? Really? Oh my God. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna need a lot of help. He's like, okay, that's fine, I'll help you. Yeah. And so. That's so cool to report that's real journalism to find these subcultures evolving, yeah. find the people at the edge and, and ask them, hey, will you help write something monthly about the subculture and you know, we can help yeah. um, you with that and pay you for that. I, that's, that's beautiful and it's completely different than the crap 
that's circulating in the mainstream media. And he had to push me, pull me, nurture me, challenge me, and 2,000 words every month. Many of the essays ended up in Wild Side Sex. So I started writing, and I got no writing training in college. I mean, I wrote term papers, but that doesn't count, right? Because I wasn't writing about me and my experiences. I had no ambitions to be a writer. I didn't even know I could. And somebody said, could you write about your experience? I'm like, don't worry, we'll edit it. Like, okay, sure. And so, meantime, Alice in Wonderland here starts writing about her adventures. And, and then I start to take apart, because I was fascinated with the why. And again, back to the curiosity about the strategies of ordinary people, right? And I would start to ask people, because I had this writing and deadline, it gave me an excuse to ask people. And there were these cafe conversations that happened. And when we were sitting around in cafes and bars, at least my cohorts, we weren't talking about, oh, stock options and beta testing and all that stuff, no. No, we weren't talking about tech developments, we were talking about life development. But not like life coaching, but it's like, oh my God, I tried this thing and it really, I really fucked it up. Wow, what, well, how have you dealt with that? And what's this about? And, and I am, I'm having all these feelings and I, help me explain it. These are the conversations we were having. It, it was revolutionary and we didn't know it, you know? So I started writing columns and then the columns caught the attention of somebody who was doing little workshops in a corner kinky bookstore. And she's like, why don't you teach a class? And I see that, you know, you've been, you've been writing stuff. I'm like, oh, I don't know, I can't teach. Oh, no, no, here's the format, here's the structure, just follow this and just talk about what you know. You just, you got, I give you two hours and I'll pay you for it. Aww. Talk what you know. Yeah. Okay. Sure. In the meantime, I had some public speaking training through San Francisco Sex Information, right? So I had some of that training, but I'm like, oh, okay. So I think the first class that I taught was, I think, 96, maybe? Yeah, 95 or 96. Somewhere in there in 94, 95, I ended up going to Burning Man, 94 and 95. It was a very different event. Um, so I turned out that I could teach. I didn't know that. Lo and behold, apparently watching my mother teaching taught me a few things. Yeah. My mother's actually not a good teacher. She's a genius, but she assumes everybody has the same genius level attention. I'm a little funnier. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, so, and I didn't know I was funny. But I would point out real things, and apparently it was funny. So you're still writing monthly, and you're teaching. And, and, and this is like in, um, on the side, and yeah. I'm doing a going nowhere job that pays the rent, and I'm adventuring in the city, and uh, uh, trying out sex parties, and, and exploring with, with lovers, and, oh, and beautiful, beautiful relationships. Um, 
scandalous ones, passionate ones. Um, to be able to open am, I, am, I, am I having a faraway look? Let's talk about your art. Yeah. Just, uh, just to like be able to comfortably talk about our sexual experiences to make that not taboo anymore. It's so important. Now yeah. you said let's talk about my art, which yeah. actually has the roots in the nightclub. Thanks. Remember I said something about being invited up onto the stage and doing weird ass shit with uh, people who were doing what would be called performance art. And so I started doing things The with dance them. with the boa constrictor. Mm, yes. The boa constrictor, you bet. And then I started creating imageries that were playing in the grotesque. And then I end up meeting people like um, uh, Scott from the Mystic Midway local character and start creating and, and dabbling into performance art stuff. There we go, there's some characters of mine. Oh, hey. Um, yeah, these, these are all, are all yeah. So we, we went through a couple things while we were talking. We, were, we, we showed you uh, a little bit on, um, on Firehorse Productions holds all of these different things. One of them is uh, Rope Dojo, um, which uh, teaches about rope control. We, 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 went, we went through these images all, yeah, all just, already. Just to educate yes. people on what we yes. went through, um, which teaches about rope control. And you guys can, um, you guys can go and look at those uh, events again. I'll give um, a short version. I teach a lot of stuff. A lot of things around rope bondage, women's dominance intensive, using your voice for sex and the hotness. Um, I teach a bunch of hot things. It'll, um, it's fun, show up as a date night. Fort FM though, that's for women to tap into their authentic power. It's awesome, but let's talk about my art. Yeah, yeah. Now let's go back to, now let's go back to Fort FM. <laughs> okay. I just, I just want to, um, <laughs> I just want to really move these shows so that um, I just want these shows to be under an hour, Alan. Oh. And I don't want you to take advantage of, uh, let's move these shows, Alan. So, Forte FM or my art? Which should we talk about? Forte FM. All right, so Forte FM. I'm super excited about Forte FM. I started that in what, um, 2000, I want to say, Two, 2002 or 2004. It is a three-day intensive. Uh, myself and nine women in either San Francisco or New York. And it is, it is a women's dominance weekend intensive. However, it is not about what the wacky pokey bindy things. It is about how to tap into your authentic power and to unleash it from the bedroom to the boardroom. I'm using BDSM and kink as a sandbox, a portal of exploration of power. And I think most people are kinky in some way or another, you know, um, from maybe somebody who just likes a little booty smack and a little nipple tweak once in a while, all the way to something incredibly intense or psychologically deep and exploratory. Most people are kinky. It's a human condition. Right? It's a beautiful uh, spectrum. The yeah. occasional buoy slap or nipple twist all the way to being completely roped. And the, the books have a tremendous, you know, we showed those as well. The books actually have a tremendous amount of, of, of explanation to how to do this safely um, and how to do it in a way that is um, smart. And, and compassionate. And compassionate, yeah, that empathy for getting yeah. behind the worldview because it's, it's experiencing a state of 
of consciousness that's non-ordinary, a state of consciousness that, um, that is a, it's a beautiful uh, feeling of emotion to experience. And so, yeah, we, we showed some of the some of the other books we were just talking about for Femme, that's also on um, the links in the bio to check out. Um, and the amount of, 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 of also art that you've, that you've made is just, and I love the art because it's- I, I do want to go mention, back to Fort Femme just ahead. a yes. little bit though, because it's not what people think. We have, we have a graduate society of amazing women they are C-level CEOs, CFOs, um, heads, of, uh, heads of departments, entrepreneurs. These are women who are finding ways by which to figure out collaborative power engagement in their bedroom. And they're taking it from the bedroom and being true to what would please them now and to look at that as a model of creating, to collaboratively create mutual satisfaction. Yeah. Now, if we can do that in the bedroom. Yeah, on the planet. Right, yeah. and there's this quiet secret society of Fort FM graduates. Yeah, beautiful. And they're making amazing things happen. I'm so excited about them, but yeah. Um, yeah, the way that you dis unleash your authentic power from the boardroom to the bedroom. Yeah, women's dominance intensive. And what the skills um, learned can help on the whole planetary level completely. Yeah, yeah, it's massive. Yep. Yeah, I love it. Let's talk it. about my art. More, more yeah. to unpack on, on future shows, absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah, the critical principle. Yeah, so it's everything from performance art, installations, painting, um, Evoco. Oh, this is my Evoco, yeah. Yeah, Evoco. Um, multi-phase project about how we create, hold, interpret, and alter memory. And there's my friend experience. Samar, and our prince was lovely to work with. That was at a recent performance. It's gorgeous, yeah. And then this one is... Um, Yamamba. Yamamba. Yeah. Lives in the dusty edge of the primordial forest on the fringe of civilization subconscious. <laughs> oh, I love embodying Yamamba. Yeah. And then Hodoku. Hodoku. To uncoil yeah. the ancient one. Beneath all the cover-up is an animal heart, a puzzle new to be solved by her alone. And that speaks to all of us, because right inside is an animal heart that mm -hmm. is our own process of self-discovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kimono tu. Yeah, kimono tu, what we wear. Yeah, what we wear. The expectations and commodification of Japanese American woman today. Plastics, you showed a massive uh, exhibit of blow up dolls that are clicked together like Ikea furniture um, to showcase kind of like hungry culture fed on individuals and security fears and inadequacies. Oh yeah, and that's the love seat. The love seat is uh, part, of the, seat. Yeah, okay. part of the body of work called plastics and it's meant to be sat on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it's meant to be sat on and it creates, it inspires conversations, interesting yeah. conversations between people because there's this vulgar object, yeah. right? And creating this funny thing, but underneath the humor and the goofiness is this deep cultural horror because all of these things, all the, the blow-up dolls, I mean, who talks about owning a blow-up doll? They don't. It's and yet it's 
thousands, thousands upon thousands of, of these are made using precious resource, exploiting labor in, in other countries, creating um, toxic uh, byproducts and then um, carbon footprint to bring us that. And then there are body parts that are replaceable like commodified female bodies and sexual imagery of women. And all right, fine, um, I'll make a couch out of it. And force people to talk about it by sitting on it. And, and yeah. initially it's ha ha ha, and then they realize the grotesqueness of it. Yeah, it inspires conversations that need to. So I love playing with the grotesque. I love playing with the unexpected. Yeah. I love playing with, with that bit of humor. Oh, this, 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 because they, the people that come to the dining room actually get to break the plates first yes. and then you assemble it into like a carpet underneath of the dining room table. I throw what I call the shatter party and invite people to break dishes. Shatter party, yeah. Yeah, and there's such an exhilaration and release of emotion when people are breaking the dishes and then I collect it into the carpet and I wanted to create an imagery that cut across class and demographics to address the unseen wounds in our families of origin. Mm. The unseen wounds in the families of origin. Yeah. We're typically not highlighting our uh, unseen wounds. We are very stoic about those and yeah. yeah. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Yep. Yeah. And the, the plates on the table tops actually were broken and then I glued them back together yeah. for this semblance of normalcy and nothing is cracked. No, no it's not. It's Everything's not. fine. It's fine, yeah. And when, when this exhibition has gone up in a few places, it brings forth torrent of emotions with the attendees. There's a mirror on the other side. And as you're approaching the installation and you look at it through this window and your reflection is in the mirror, it places you in the exhibit, in the, exhibit. In the dining That's room. That's great, yeah. And you become an accomplice. Yeah. In the silence. I love it. I love your, your art installations. I'm, I'm excited. We'll be able to unpack more um, on the art installations, uh, on the writing, because um, all of the books are, are unique and beautiful in their own way that we'll get to, um, to talk about as well in future conversations. And, and also um, getting a little bit deeper into the neuroscience of, of certain things in the future. I'd like to talk to you about that. Yay. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, get, to, we'll get to jump into some of those um, conversations more um, and on the safety of all of these things, on, on, the, um, on how it drives us more uh, to things like the, the, um, the moment's clarity and pureness of existence. So I'm looking forward to those conversations in our future, Midori. This has been really fun getting to know you better and showcasing all of this. You made me cry. You crushed it. Thank <laughs> you you for, made me thank cry. You, thank, thank you. Yes, on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ron, for producing and directing. We really appreciate it, Ron. 
Shadows, desires, and creativity. Everyone, give us your thoughts in the comments below on the episode. We'd love to hear from you. Also, do check out the links in the bio as well. Again, ranchin.com and the uh, fortfem.com and fhp-inc.com and the Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Patreon profiles. Patreon, support my Patreon because I'm working on my next bondage book. He is working on the next bondage book. Support on Patreon to help with that process. Um, to have more conversations with your friends, families, coworkers, people online on social media about shadows, desires, creativity, and all the things that we talked about today with sexuality, BDSM, self-expression. Let's get talking about that more. And support the artists, the entrepreneurs, the organizations, spiritual leaders like Midori, like Simulation. Her links are below. Ours are also below to Patreon, cryptocurrency, PayPal, and design cool merch. Get paid. All the cool stuff's below for you to check out. And go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you soon. Peace.